hearts, our wills before you. You are the great I am, the timeless one, the one with no beginning, no end. You are a personal God to us, not just this majesty set at a distance, but the majesty that humbled himself to come down to walk in our skin, to be like us, to be even tempted, tried, to suffer, to feel pain, so that you might release us from our sins by your blood. You are the, the God that before you loved us, you loved the nation, you called it out of people. We thank you for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the special place that they have in your heart, the apple of your eye. And we pray this morning, Father, we'd, we'd be able to enter into this teaching of the scriptures and understand how pivotal this message you gave to Daniel was, not only in understanding and giving comfort and direction to him, giving him discernment, but to lay out a path for how you will one day cause dry bones to come alive, to have flesh put upon them. There will be a, a nation um, that will be your people once again, not, not the political entity that we have now, although that may be a part of it, but a nation that will have one heart for you. And we, we look forward to that, Lord. We know that there are great things yet to happen, difficult things yet to happen. It'll be the time of, of Jacob's trouble. And so we ask, Father, you help us to discern these things, to open our minds to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 70 weeks of Daniel. This is a most important prophecy. Of course, when we say the Messianic prophecies are very important, of course they are. They talk about the prediction of Jesus coming to be that Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. But this is a very, very important prophetic passage in many ways. And Dwight Pentecost talks about this. But before we get into it, just a, a, an aside to to give you um, an idea how I'm approaching the passage and how we as elders have talked about this. There are two, basically two schools of interpretation when it comes to Bible prophecy. There's an allegorical method, and then there's the literal method. The allegorical method basically says that the church is spiritual Israel. We are the recipients of the promises of Israel, and the things that God said to Israel really have been set aside. They're being fulfilled in the church. That's a method that we're not going to use this morning. We're going to use a literal method because if you remember, we went back to those covenants of Israel, which were literal covenants. They talked about a literal land, a literal line of David, the root of Jesse, a literal fulfillment to prophecy. To give you an idea, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, there is not a real person named Pilgrim. There's not a real person named Valiant for Truth. But those characters represent something spiritual that is meant to be beneficial to us as we read and understand. And we see the trials and the difficulties and the pathway that Pilgrim walks along. And we see there are spiritual connectedness to spiritual truth in that story. But there is no literal Pilgrim. It's a character. There is a real, physical, ancient nation called Israel. And the Old Testament tracks with amazing specificity, the ups and the downs, the God being 
intimately and personally involved, even to the extent that he speaks directly to those that would become his messengers, and he gets very pointed messages. And so we're, we're going to see one of those this morning because this prophecy does several things to us. First of all, it does establish the literal method of interpretation of prophecy. When Daniel reads and hears the description, when he reads Jeremiah, he's reading things that happened in time that were meant to be very directive in his life and the life of his fellow Israelites. And again, the covenants we talked about at the beginning of this, these are yet in many ways to be fulfilled. Like I said in my prayer, Israel does not have one heart fully in allegiance to God. Matter of fact, the people that live over there, they're very much rejecting Jesus as their Messiah right now presently. There'll be a great many things that have to happen to change that heart nationally for them to be able to receive Jesus. The second thing is that this passage demonstrates the truth of Scripture, not just in this passage itself, but in the passage we'll look back and see Jeremiah. Next thing, it supports the view that the church is a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. There's nothing said about the church in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. Mystery is basically a secret that is yet to be revealed. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul personally says, even among the other apostles, he says, I was the one who was entrusted with this stewardship, this administration of the church. The fact that the church is going to be this very unique thing from a nation. It is a spiritual entity. We don't all live in one place and have borders, right? God's, God's filled the earth with believers in many different tongues and peoples and tribes and dialects. And it is a spiritual nation, as First Peter says. But it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed until Paul says, hey, there is this thing that God is doing. He's taking Jewish people who will bow the knee to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, even preemptively to there being a national repentance. And he's taking Gentiles, the nations, and they come to Jesus. They come to salvation the same way. And they're born into this beautiful thing called the church where there is this great diversity. And yet there's this one bond in spirit in the same gospel. And, um, and that wasn't revealed until the New Testament. Even, even some of the, the early believers that were Jewish, remember? Acts chapter 8, they had a hard time wrapping their mind around the fact that, hey, Gentiles are going to be part of us? And that had to be played out and explained, and it, and it worked its way out over time. And then letter D, it gives us the divine chronology of prophecy. All that happens right here in these few verses. Now, let's look at Daniel chapter 9. The setting is 537 B.C. This is an interesting thing. And you notice it says in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. Very little, 70 years. He's looking at it. He's looking at the time of that prophecy, and he's counting down the days. Now, this is a very important year because Cyrus, the year before this, had issued the decree for the people of Israel that were in Babylon to go back. They, they're free to go back. But it was fraught with difficulties, and there had to be subsequent 
decrees to allow them to actually be able to go. It, it was also a year before Zerubbabel, who was this, this kind of uh, this construction guy and a leader, it was a year before he had actually yet to go back to begin to put the foundations of the temple down. And we find Daniel right in the middle of these, these two bracketed years wondering what's going to happen here. And we see that there is a literal understanding of prophecy. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And we've probably all heard of verse 11. We probably quoted it. But we might not know verse 10. Turn to Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. And this is Jeremiah giving instruction. This is when we talked about early in, in the early introductions that, that God basically said, this judgment's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it. So you people in Jerusalem and the environs, you, you, you southern tribe, just accept it. Go willingly, quietly. Go set up places. Do business. Be a benefit to these Gentile people who are going to hold you in captivity, basically. Keep you in exile. And that's all in the first parts of verses here. You know, take wives, become fathers, mothers. Build your businesses. And why? Because God knew he was sending them back and they needed to be prepared. They needed to have some wealth to take with them because it was all left behind and desolate in Israel. And notice in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And here we know this verse many times have heard it. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. That verse we often quote, the interpretation is that is for Israel. I mean, we might apply that, but we need to listen to the verse the way the early people, the first audience heard it. That's a good interpretive principle. And Daniel took him literally. And so what does he do? He begins to pray and fast. He begins to confess sins. Notice, it says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications, Daniel 9, 3, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, <clears throat> the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants and prophets. We spoke who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have, thou hast driven them, because of their own faithful deeds, which they have committed against thee. And this goes on, and, and we see that Daniel is in this, this mode for some time, he confesses not only, I mean, we talk about Daniel being this exemplary person, but notice what he does. He's kind of like, like Moses as a leader. Even though he might be standing personally righteous and not have done anything, he realizes he's collectively a part of people who've been rebellious. And even sometimes the people who are acting righteously get caught in the collective judgment. And he owns that. 
I mean, just as we should own the wickedness of our nation, we should be praying for God's mercy. We might not be doing the deeds, but we are part of the, of the people that are. And there's a need for us to intercede for our country, for our leaders, for people who rebel and act wickedly against God. Notice this contrition, this intercession, it continues. And notice his request in verse 18. Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake. O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Beautiful, beautiful thing. This is, again, he's praying in the will of God. You know, if you, you know Jesus tell, instructs us to, to ask anything in his name with his authority. This is what Daniel's doing. He's basically saying, on the authority of your name as a covenant-keeping God, I'm asking you to fulfill these things, to bring your people back into the land. Now, while I'm speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. If you wanted some, some background on that, you have this sense that in, um, I think it's in chapter 10, that the angel says, Gabriel says, look, I, I want to come to you as soon as you started praying. And basically it took me a month to get here because I was in spiritual warfare with people, with entities, with principalities and powers that did not want this message to get to you. I mean, that's an, that's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? What the angels and demons are doing. What the demons are doing to thwart the plans and the, and the prospects of God in this world. Now, we've talked about this before, but just to emphasize it again, Daniel is in, in some sense of, of conflict here. On the one hand, he is very trusting in the promises of God, the covenants of God. At the same time, he's received all these visions that talk about the ascendancy of Gentile nations, wicked people, idol worshipers, lascivious people, people with no morals. And those will be the ongoing list, whether we talk about the image in Daniel chapter 2 that we've already looked at, where we talk about the four beasts that, that Dave, um, the glow, uh, handled for us and, and showed us this progression of these empires that will dominate the nations through, through centuries, really. And he's in some conflict over these because God hasn't said a whole lot about what his specific plans are for Israel. But this is the answer. This is the answer that Gabriel says, you need to discern and understand these things. And he, and here we go, because we're going to work to see how God clarifies Daniel in the midst of his crisis. And we're going to take our time slowly, piece by piece, work through this, because every, every phrase, every, you know, even every individual word has some importance to it. But notice the passage starts out, 
Daniel 9.24, and we're looking at the 70 weeks. And we see that 70 weeks, or 77s, have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Very specifically, this is a prophecy for Daniel, his people, and by extension we'll, we'll hear his temple, the place of worship, because he's praying, God, we're not offering in obedience the sacrifices that you call for in Leviticus. We don't even have a temple, <laughs> you know? I mean, so there was a priority, and you notice in the calls and the decrees that the first thing the Jews asked for is, can we go get our place of worship? That is our homing point. 77s. Now, the context tells us that these can't be days or weeks or months because we could look back in history and say it wasn't in 70 months that all this happened. It wasn't in 70 days or 70 weeks. So the implication is this is 70 years or 70 groups of seven years, which is more than seven years. It's more than 70 years. It's 490 years collectively, and we'll see that. He opens this prophecy with six blessings. Three are related to the redemptive aspect of Messiah. Notice, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity. These are three different ways of saying God is going to deal with the sin issue of mankind in a thoroughgoing way. There's three different, three different expressions of, of sinfulness. First is transgression. That means to cross a line. It has the idea that the line has been put in place. And this has the idea that, that God gave 613 commandments to Israel, and they went about trying to cross the line and break as many of them as possible. Not a lot different than us. And the idea is there's something there that you know is supposed to be your boundary for your protection and your provision, but you step across it and you do what you want anyway. Sometimes in omission, sometimes not even purposely, you just, you broke, the, you broke God's law. The second idea is sin. Sin, with used concept in the New Testament, means to miss the mark. Just, we're just not good enough. We're not righteous enough in ourselves. Whatever righteousness we have, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags to God. They're useless to him. And just as we go about our business living, thinking we're doing okay, we still aren't measuring up to God's standard of perfection. And then the final term is iniquity. Iniquity is self-willed, purposeful sin. It's like, I know there's a line. I didn't just happen across it. I'm full bore intent to go across it. I want to do what I want to do. That's what it says of David when he looked on Bathsheba and then he took her. <laughs> he says it was iniquity. He knew exactly what he was doing. That's what he's saying. The idea here is this is a tremendous blessing, these three phrases, because it says that Messiah is going to deal with sin once for all. There is this aspect of his, his salvific, a good the theological word, salvific work, that he's going to be the one that deals with sin. The Messiah is. The second three statements happen after a gap of time. They haven't happened yet. It's kind of like if you look at this, this photo here, we can look at the Blue Ridge Mountains, as they are properly called there, and you can see one peak and then the next peak and the next peak. And kind of prophetically, the Old Testament prophets looked at these peaks and they, they saw the peaks and 
They didn't see the valleys. And that's what we're going to find right here in the passage. There's gaps in time. There's space between this event and this event, even though it's only a couple phrases apart in the verse itself. And so what Daniel looks at in these second three blessings is there is the reigning aspect of Messiah. There is the redemptive side. There's the reigning side. Same person, different purposes, different times. A gap of time intervening, which is what we call the mystery of the church. Now, it says he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal vision and prophecy. And he's going to anoint the most holy place. What are these things? To bring in everlasting righteousness means that there will be a rightful ruler that will rule with a rod and iron. There will be adherence to the law. First of all, the people entering into this period of Messiah's reign, they will be able to do that in many ways because Jeremiah 31 will be true. All Israel will be saved. By the end of the tribulation period, which we'll look at, Israel is going to, Zechariah says, look on him whom they pierced, and there is going to be a national, whatever is left of them anyway, a remnant of Jews who will collectively say, my Lord and my God. They will believe. They'll go into that millennial kingdom with a sense of redemptive loyalty to Christ as their ruler. The second thing is to seal up vision prophecy. That is, there are things yet to be fulfilled that are revealed, that are prophetic, that haven't happened yet. When Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth, all those prophecies will be fulfilled in him as a person, and he will make sure that they all come to pass. And the last thing is to anoint the most holy place. Basically, if you look in Ezekiel 40 to 48, tremendous section of the Bible that nobody reads, but it's pretty exciting, actually, if you read it. It talks about a temple that hasn't been built yet. Matter of fact, there's another temple that hasn't been built yet. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's going to be a temple in the millennial kingdom where Christ will have a throne inside that temple. There will be worship and sacrifice reinstituted, and it will have to be anointed. It will have to be set apart and consecrated, just like the first temple with Solomon was consecrated, and the glory of God invaded the place so that people just had to fall down, basically. People couldn't even stand up to minister. The Levites, the musicians, they just, they were down. God's going to have that kind of glory enter into a temple yet to come. Now, let's get into the passage. He breaks it up, and he says, verse 25, So you know and discern, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And we're not have time to look at all these, but your notes have it. Ezra chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is, just to give you some background, there were four decrees. There was the initial decree, Cyrus said, hey Ezra, you guys can all go back, Israel can go back to land. They had some problems, they couldn't really get things going. Then Darius made a second decree that basically gave them the right to go build the temple when it was reestablishing Cyrus's decree. There's a third decree by Artaxerxes, that actually said, okay, you have the permission, and I'm going to make sure you have safe passage because there are enemies, there are people that were squatters in the land. 
And Artaxerxes says, I'm going to make sure you actually get back to Jerusalem and you start rebuilding that temple. There's a fourth decree, which is really this decree not to restore and rebuild the temple, but to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the whole, the whole city. And we see that is associated with Nehemiah went back and began to put walls around the place so that people could be secure, so the temple could be secure. And from that period of time until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or seven sevens, 49 years, and then 62 sevens, 434 years. All that time from the time that Cyrus' decree until there actually was a secure Jerusalem took 49 years. Lots of stops and starts and difficulties and enemies against them and intrigue and all kinds of things that happened for them to finally get that done. And from that point, there will be another 62 sevens or 434 years or quick math, everybody, how has that come to? 483 years. So there's still seven years not accounted for yet. <laughs> and notice until Messiah the Prince. Very important. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19 to see this, because this is, this is pretty exciting stuff, and I will tell you that some way smarter people than I have actually done these calculations and looked at, and, and don't get hung up on the numbers, because if you just look at the numbers, you, you can't just do that, because remember, the Jews did not have a 365-day year. They had a 360-day year, so there's a whole lot of calculations that go into this, but somebody has actually done that work. And turn to Luke chapter 19. Triumphal entry. As he's approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a voice, loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What did the people just do? They collectively, they acknowledged the princeship of Jesus. That's what they just did. Publicly, with great fanfare, in a public demonstrable way. Now, people had said that Jesus was the king individually, yes, but this is the first time a collective group of people acknowledged the princely rule of Jesus, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. This happened on the day of the triumphal entry. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he, Jesus, answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This had to happen. And if somebody wasn't going to do it, namely these people, God would break loose the voices of the rocks. Because there has to be a fulfillment of this prophecy. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. Very important. You don't see this here maybe, but the word this in Greek is a very specific pronoun. It is saying this very day. Jesus was prophetically saying, Daniel chapter 9, from the issuing of the decree until Messiah the Prince. There's going to be 483 years. And some people have calculated that. They say it's to the day that that prophecy was fulfilled. Amazing, isn't it? And Jesus very specifically said this day, for the day shall come when, upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you 
and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon the other because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is their national offer. And unfortunately, the leaders had a role to play. You notice they were the ones that had the, had the beef here. They were the ones that rejected. They were supposed to be the ones identified with the prophecies to say who the Messiah was. And they said, you're not the guy. In spite of all the miracles, you're not the guy. You do your work by the power of Satan, basically, by the underworld. And they rejected him. And Jesus says, there's going to be judgment, national judgment. There's coming a judgment upon you, which was fulfilled in 70 AD. We'll see that. It's predicted here in Daniel as well. Notice to be built in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Immediately after that, literally five days later, Jesus was crucified. He's acknowledged with some sense of a, a national representation of a, at least a subset of the people. And then he's killed five days later. He'll, he's cut off and have nothing. And notice, and the people of the prince who is to come. The people, it, 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 this is not the prince. It's the people of the prince who is to come. That is the Romans. Remember the legs of iron? The legs of iron in the, in the statue? They are in rule at this time. They are the ones that crucified Jesus. Titus, the Roman Empire, in 70 AD, came against Jerusalem and sieged it. Predicted in more than one place in the Old Testament what was going to happen. But very specifically here, the people, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, not one stone would sit on the other. That's exactly what happened. Torn down desecrated, terrible things happened in the midst of that siege, terrible things people did to their own families, babies thrown over the wall as an act of mercy so they wouldn't starve to death, they couldn't stand the crying any longer. Its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. It was an utter defeat, an utter desolation, and it basically stayed that way for the next 1900 years until 1948, Israel had a chance to go back and begin to rebuild it. As far as the people of Israel were determined. Now notice then there's this gap. Again, we talked about the gap between the redemptive and the gap between the reigning aspect. And he will make, and he, who's the he? The arrow points back to Prince who is to come. This is the Antichrist. This is the little horn. This is the man of sin. This is the beast of Revelation 19. Many, many different terms. But here he's talking about the prince who is to come. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Notice, this person yet to come onto the world scene is going to bring peace between Israel and all her enemies. And she has many, as we know. And this covenant will be for how long? One week equals how many years? Seven years. There's going to be a covenant. It's going to happen very, maybe not with a lot of fanfare, maybe with great fanfare, we're not sure. But this is the person who is the Antichrist, the Anti-Messiah. 
I think part of what his shtick will be is he will be claiming to bring in the promised blessings and prosperity of the Abrahamic covenant, which will be a false peace. Remember, God said to Abraham, I will bless you, those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. And basically this guy says, hey, we've got to take care of Israel, and then we're all going to be in a great way. You know? And he has the military power, apparently, to enforce this covenant, to make there to be at least a temporary peace or an armistice of some sort. And as amazing as this sounds, it will be a peace that allows Israel to begin building a temple. And guess where the temple is going to be? This is going to be an amazing earthquake of politics and human diplomacy because that temple is going to be right on top of Islam's Dome of the Rock. How in the world is that going to happen? I don't know. But they're going to rebuild it, and there's Jewish rabbis that have been keeping track of all the foundations. They're doing underground excavations. There's, there's a lot of things you get into it that are going on over there. They're, they've reestablished Levitical lines so they can reinstitute the priesthood. There's a lot of things being prepared for that time. And Israel will have their temple worship reinstituted. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the next thing he says, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering. Well, if he's going to stop it, that presumes that it already started, right? Somehow it started. And at three and a half years in, this one who is in the spirit of Antiochus Epiphanes is going to set himself up to be worshipped as God. He's going to break the covenant with Israel that he established. And he's basically going to institute himself as God to be worshipped among all the inhabitants of the earth. So there is this process, and we might talk about this more when we get into the millennial kingdom. But there is, in Jeremiah's time, no temple. Then there's a temple that's rebuilt. Then that temple is destroyed. Well, actually, there's one in there, Herod's temple, which replaced the kind of the, the blasé one that was, that was built during Ezra's time. Herod builds this more magnificent one. That got destroyed in 70 AD. Now there's no temple. There's going to be another temple that's instituted in, in this seven-year period. And one day, God's Christ is going to just wipe that one off, and we're going to build... A millennial temple, Ezekiel 40 to 48. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Basically saying, yes, there's one that's going to be a desolator. He's going to be an abominator. He's going to shake his fist at the God of the heavens, but his end will come suddenly and he will be made desolate. He will get his comeuppance. Revelation 19, if you want to turn there, we'll just read that. Tells about the end of this one, this false Messiah. In verse 19, and I saw the beast, which is this, another name for the Santa Christ, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, that is Jesus, who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Final battle, very quick dispatch. People that are uniquely among all judgments 
just bodily taken from this earth and cast in a lake of fire. Human beings. Summary judgment. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because right now, wickedness is running breakneck in this direction of the fulfillment of these things. There are people right now who are in the world today that hate us. We're in their way. Jesus predicted they would. You not be surprised by that. The restrainer is restraining back and holding back sin and unrestrained wickedness that will come once the church is out of the way. Holy Spirit then dwells us, that allows us to be salt and light and to have a difference and to hold back the darkness. But the floodgates will one day come down. God will turn his attention first in kind of a chastening way, if you will. That seven-year period in other places called the time of Jacob's trouble. The people of Israel will have some trouble for a while because God will be using that trouble, that difficulty, as a way to shock them awake to where they stand in relation to to the Messiah they rejected so many years ago. There's this wonderful passage. We'll end it with it and turn to Romans chapter 11. God does have a plan yet for Israel, not just in relation to the Messiah, but in relation to national salvation. And Paul wanted to address this because he was addressing in the book of Romans people who were Jewish by descent, who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, and there's also Gentiles. Matter of fact, probably predominantly Gentiles in the church that he was speaking to. In verse 25, he says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. What's the mystery? Well, that, that Israel as a branch to the vine of Jehovah had been taken out so that the branch of the church could be grafted in. We weren't naturally there. My granddad used to do grafting of fruit trees, and it's amazing what you can do. You can actually put multiple varieties on the same tree, and it'll grow, and that branch will keep its own DNA and produce its own fruit unique from the rest of the tree. And that's kind of how we are. We were the mystery. We were something in the heart and the plan of God in order to reach the world. But we're kind of the wild branch that got put into the vine. It says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, God is working. He's working in all peoples. And yes, there are Jewish people coming to Christ. And we share, we share this space with some people who are wonderful people who many of them have Jewish DNA. Wonderful thing. And God's opened their eyes. But the vast majority of the people that are trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation these days are Gentiles. And there's a fullness of that time. The last one that comes in the fold basically before God begins to turn his attention elsewhere to this nation and reconstructing it and fulfilling his promises to them. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. God has a heart for Israel still. He's just waiting for time and prophetic calendar to move forward to begin to work with them. This is a, a very expansive kind of salvation, a very expansive kind of deliverance. And if we had time on another occasion, we look at how God will basically begin to raise the gospel up through Jewish witnesses to go into all the world and find those people in all the lands. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are 
enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God's heart is still with these people. If there's anything that saved the United States is that we've been the friend of Israel. Because there are plenty of other reasons God should just wipe us out. But, but we do have a history of being the friend of these people. From welcoming literally millions of them in to our shores to immigrate here, to what we do politically and militarily to keep them in a place of security. But notice this, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not going to change his promises. He's not going to fulfill them in us. He's going to fulfill them when the very people we called out by his name. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. God hasn't forgot. He's still seeking after them. Notice, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Just happens to be at different times and different emphasis through the last 2,000 years. Then Paul breaks out with his exaltation. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, what a wonderful God you are. A wonderful maker, creator, a wonderful redeemer, a wonderful covenant keeper, a one who is faithful and true. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that we can look back on your redemptive promises fulfilled and with anticipation, Lord, look forward to the reigning aspect of who you are right now. As we looked at you not too long ago, I see you ready on the edge of the seat of your throne, ready to come back, take us unto yourself to usher in this last seven-year period where you and the Father will work anew into the hearts of Israel nationally. You will open their eyes that have been, have blinders put upon them for our good and our redemption. And that their rejection will not go forever. But it'll turn out that one day they will look on you, whom they pierced. They will be pierced even in the soul of their spirit. They will understand what their forefathers have done, and they will, they will bow the knee. They will fully, with open arms, accept you as the Prince of Peace, the Son of David, the Messiah of Israel. Even so, Lord, we pray these things would come. We ask in Christ's name.